Shelley Schlender for Me and My Diabetes. Up next, we hear from Steve Finney about the new Harvard study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that has many good points to it, but some flaws and some misinterpretation by the media. Let's listen in. Here's Steve Finney. Tell me, Steve Finney, what you think about the Eberling study from Boston about a calorie is not just a calorie. Well, there is that. That's what grabbed a lot of the news. And that's a very important observation that people fed the same number of calories with very different composition of those calories, differing amounts of fat and carbohydrate in particular, had different effects on their metabolism. And the people who had the highest metabolic rate on the same number of calories were the people fed the, their, what they called their low carbohydrate diet. But to me, the most important result of that study is that that study has literally driven the figurative stake through the heart of the a low-fat diet is good for you myth. I mean, that myth is dead. You know, all we have to do is bury it because whether there were three diets, there was a Mediterranean diet, a low, what they called the low-carbohydrate diet, and I'll keep saying, we'll come back to that. And then they had a high-carbohydrate diet. The uh, people that they studied had metabolic syndrome characteristics, that is, things that uh, you'd want to have get better. And essentially, very few of them got better on their low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. A lot of them got better on the Mediterranean diet, but most of them got even better on, the, on their low-carbohydrate diet. So whether we argue about Mediterranean or low-carb now, we can pretty much say goodbye to the low-fat myth. If all the other studies in the past hadn't buried it, this one sure did. You know, Steve Finney, I just went to dinner, and one of the people who brought a potluck item was telling me she made sure that her dish was low-fat. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, I was very careful to make this a healthy dish. It is low-fat. Well, you know, even after you kill a giant, you still have to dispose of the body. <laughs> I'm not saying the giant's body isn't lying around messing up our kitchens, but... You know, and food is, you know, the food industry does not change, you know, direction on a dime. But uh, we will increasingly see the opportunities and the options, at least, for some of us who do respond in a very healthy way to carbohydrate restriction. We will have more and better options to pursue that diet. Do you think that it might be something that affects school nutrition policy, where right now the school, my plate, uh, is emphasizing the idea that you should not have very much fat on that plate. That'll take a while. And people will vote with their mouths. You know, you know if, if there's no butter on the plate and you want to have butter on your vegetables, you just bring it from home. It'll, it'll keep. You can put olive oil in a vanilla jar that you've emptied out, a little tiny jar, and bring it. And that works too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I have a squeeze bottle I carry with me. It's Less than three and a half ounces, but that gives me an extra ounce per day if I try on a three-day trip and I can get it through the airport as check-on. Well, so you're seeing some practical ways that this study might open up the opportunities for people to be more open about eating a higher-fat diet. But what about the science of that study? What struck you about the science of the study first? And then after that, let's look at what strikes you about how the media has responded to that study. Okay. The, the, the people who ran the study, uh, Dr. Eberling was the first author, 
that group at Harvard is a highly respected group. And getting it published in JAMA gives it a considerable amount of political clout. That's the Journal of the American Medical Association. Right. It was a very well-designed study in terms of the basic science of it. But you know, if I look back at why it turned out the way it did, it's apparent that the low-carb diet that they used was one that they sort of took off the shelf sometime back, probably between 2003 and 2006. Their study actually started in 2008, so they had to have designed the diet before the study started. And this is well before much of the research, the recent research that has come out indicating a better way to formulate a low-carb diet. Uh, so when, when you look at what, how it was formulated, it was a high-protein diet that was relatively low in salt. The amount of carbohydrate they fed, if you look at their table, it looks like they fed 50 grams per day. But if you read the caption on the table, it's not 50 grams per day, it's 50 grams of carbs per 2,000 calories. Now, 2,000 calories sounds like a lot of calories for a person to eat, but the subjects that they had energy expenditure averaged somewhat over 3,000 calories a day. They weren't feeding them for weight loss, they were feeding them for weight maintenance. So they had to feed people the same number of calories as they were burning. So their average subject got over 3,000 calories a day, which means they got over 75 grams of carbohydrate per day. And for most people, that prevents them from becoming adapted, fully adapted to a low-carb diet, the process that we've previously uh, identified as keto adaptation. Steve Finney, are you suggesting that the low-carb, high-fat diet that was used in the Harvard study was not really a very low-carb, very high-fat diet after all. Well, in the article, they state it was a very low-carb diet. In actuality, it was not a very low-carb diet. And when you combine that with the fact that the typical subject was getting 225 grams of protein per day, it was a very high-protein diet, the combination of that high-protein and that substantial amount of carbohydrate would significantly interfere with the adaptations that we've shown, this process we call nutritional ketosis, that we've shown is most effective at countering insulin resistance and uh, turning around, basically putting either type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome in remission. So they undershot the effective diet by a very considerable degree. Well, you've explained that they had more carbohydrates per person than you would recommend for someone on a very low-carbohydrate diet. They had more than 50 grams per day. They had more like 75 grams. But why would protein be a problem? I mean, protein is not carbohydrates, and so it's lower carb than if they hadn't. You know, if, if that had been carbohydrates, it would have, well, never mind. Yeah. Just they, explain this, please. Well, well look, they, a lot of people focus on what the diet does to insulin levels, and some people think it's all about insulin levels. Some of us think beyond that, but just focusing on insulin levels per se. If you eat low carb, that allows your insulin level to go down. But if then you eat a lot of protein with it, protein stimulates insulin much more than fat does. Do you mean that when you eat a steak, it causes insulin to rise in your body a lot? Well, if you eat a 16-ounce steak, your insulin will rise much more than if you eat an 8-ounce steak. So if you eat, say, and then and, and rather than the 16-ounce steak, you have an 8-ounce steak and two pats of butter on top of it, then that will significantly raise the, the, the high, higher protein 
and less fat will significantly raise your insulin and interfere with your adaptation. Yeah. When you combine that 75 or so grams of carb and all that protein, 225 grams of protein is at the upper limit of human tolerance. And it's twice what is probably optimum or necessary for a person on a low carb diet. In other words, your characterization as an expert on low carb diets would be that the Harvard study basically used a high protein diet for their low carb, high fat arm. Yes, they, they called it a like an Atkins diet, but it's a caricature of our modern view of Atkins. As you're aware, Shelley, we, Jeff Volek, Eric Westman and I published a book a little over two years ago called The New Atkins for a New You. And for the first time in an Atkins book, we actually had a chapter in there on protein and identified not precisely how much protein a person should eat, but gave people a range. And the ranges in that book for men and women, say, and, and their average subject was five feet, eight, eight inches tall. So if at the lowest end for a woman, five foot eight, we would recommend no less than about 90 grams of protein. At the highest end for a man who was five foot eight, we would recommend no more than about 150 or 160 grams of protein. So the range was like 90 to 150, widest range for a well-formulated low-carb diet. And this study used 225 off the charts. Now, is that brand new information? And the answer is absolutely not, because I did my PhD as a graduate student at MIT, but collaborating with scientists at, at Harvard. And I defended my PhD dissertation in 1980. And the diet I used back then, which is the basis for this definition of what's right on a for a keto-adapted person maintaining their weight, that diet provided about 115 grams of protein per day for males who were averaged about five feet nine inches tall. It was a very effective amount to preserve both their lean tissue content and their function. And as you recall, Shelley, five of those subjects were highly trained bike racers and we pushed them to their max to prove that they had lost no performance once they got fully adapted to the diet. But that was on a much lower protein amount than the Harvard study had for their high fat, low carb diet. It was a high protein diet. It was a high protein, moderately reduced carb, uh, and it wasn't all that high in fat. And one issue that you see is that too much protein basically turns into sugar. So it also adds to the lack of adaptation to a low sugar, low carbohydrate diet to have a lot of protein. Absolutely. How about this then, Steve Finney? Could it be that that diet that had so much that was beneficial to it in the Harvard study, their, what they called the low-carb, high-fat diet, the high-protein diet that they did, maybe high-protein's good for people then because they had so many improvements in so many parameters with people on this, what they called the low-carb, high-fat diet that you call the high-protein diet. Well, we would call it the Harvard caricature of Atkins. <laughs> a lot of things got a lot better despite the fact that there were flaws in their diet. However, what? two things that they saw and that, that got, they reported and got, I think, overblown by the press, is that compared to the Mediterranean diet, the people on the Harvard caricature diet had a, a significant increase in cortisol levels. Cortisol is a stress hormone. And they said, see, low carbohydrate diet causes stress. But what they, did that looked really good on paper, but was kind of physiologically inappropriate, was for all three diets, they gave everybody on all three diets the exact same amount of salt. My 
myself and my collaborators over 30 years have repeatedly pointed out, when you're on a low-carb diet, the body's handling of salt changes and you need a bit more of it. They were giving a low-carb, low-salt diet. When you do that, it causes stress on the circulatory system. The blood volume actually shrinks. That causes the body to make more adrenaline and other stress hormones, and that would raise the cortisol. So I would predict that if they had given just one cup of broth, additional cup of broth or bouillon in conjunction with their diet, they would not have seen that high cortisol level. Now, I talked with Ron Rosedale about this study, and he had similar concerns to yours about the amount of protein that is in it. He had a different take about the cortisol. He said that uh, cortisol, if the diurnal rhythm is healthy, then the amount of cortisol being created by a person's body is not such an issue when it comes to health, that the bigger issue is whether the rhythm is high in the morning and low at night. And if someone just tests the urine total 24-hour level of cortisol, then the big picture is being missed because whether cortisol is high or low in someone's body, what matters more is whether the rhythm is appropriate or whether it's messed up in some way. And so he said it, it's kind of an irrelevant number anyway. But if you could make it go away with a 10-cent bouillon cube once a day, why, why should it even be an issue? And then the second thing that got pointed out as being, quote, quote, a harmful effect of the, their caricature diet was that they noted the, that C-reactive protein, which is a measure of the body's, one measure, one of many measures of the body's infl inflammation, was a little bit higher on their caricature diet than on the other two diets. If you step back a bit, this study was done in people who started out being quite obese, and they put them on a diet and had them lose about 12% of their body weight. So if somebody weighed 100 kilos and they lost 12 kilos, they lost part of their excess weight, not all of it. So these were people who went through weight loss. And then after they went through that 10 12% weight loss, then they had them do one of the three diets, and then the other, and then the other in sequence. They started out at a level of 1.6, I think, for CRP, which is not a, not, not a good number. And they dropped down to about 0.9 if you were on the other two diets, or, point, or 1.0 if you're on the caricature diet. So the caricature diet got about 85% of the improvement that you got with the other ones. It wasn't that it made it go higher, it just didn't go down quite so much. When we do studies with a well-formulated ketogenic diet, we invariably, study after study, see biomarkers of inflammation go down more compared to a carbohydrate-containing diet. So my guess is that they saw much of the benefit, but they would have seen a lot more benefit in inflammation as well if they'd gotten the diet right, right. but they didn't get the diet right, and they can't point fingers at, it, at all low-carb diets, and they can't call that one Atkins because it isn't the new Atkins. Was it statistically significant, the difference between the C-reactive protein amount for the people on the what you call the caricature diet and the people on the Mediterranean diet? Was there really a statistical difference between the levels of improvement for those two groups? That's where you start getting into splitting the ends of split ends of your hair because uh, the p-value overall for that trend was 0.13. Typically, we want the p-value to be less than 0.05, um, so that the overall p-value did not, did not support their, the, the difference between them being significant. But if you look at just the two in isolation, the p-value was 0.04 or 0.05. So it's awfully marginal 
to be, you know, barking like like a like an angry dog about something which is probably would not happen at all if they gotten the formulation correct. Steve Finney, were there other markers of inflammation in that study that did go down for the people on what they called the low-carb diet, what you call the caricature diet? Uh, caricature. 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 As, as, in, as in a cartoon of, of um, Nixon, say, or whatever. Anyway, yes, there was another uh, biomarker. I'm sure they measured many, many, but they only reported some of them. But the other one they did mention was one called plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, or PAI1, which is maybe a more potent biomarker of risk than is CRP. And PI1 went down more on their pretty good low-carb diet uh, compared to the other diets. So you can say, well, gee, CRP didn't go down as much, but then there's another one that's as, as important, equally important, that went down more. We didn't hear about that in the press, did we? Now, how about leptin and insulin? They measured those, and I believe those went down more, those two hormones went down more on the lower-carb diet than they did on the other two diets. Yes. Insulin sensitivity improved to a greater degree. Serum triglycerides went down much, much more, more dramatically. The so-called good cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, went up markedly on their low-carb diet. And as, as you pointed out at the start of the interview, Shelley, their resting metabolism went up, which means they could burn more calories uh, and hold their weight stable, which means they eat more food and still stay stable, which predicts that they would be much better at maintaining their weight loss if they stayed on a low-carb diet long-term. So there are just so many things in this study when you examine the data that strongly support the safety and efficacy and the long-term sustainability of even their version of the, of the low-carb diet. If somebody was to be on your kind of a low-carbohydrate diet with adequate protein and 50 grams of carb per day, then would their resting metabolism rate be as high as it was for these people eating a very high-protein diet? Evidence points to that, but it's still not bomb-proof evidence. But those, researchers, those, those research projects are in progress and we will have that data shortly. Well, Steve Finney, I think about the drugs that people can take to lose weight that rev up metabolism and kill people because they rev up the metabolism too much. Should we really be so happy when somebody's metabolism stays higher, or is that actually a problem? Well, that's a good question, but humans have been dealing with low-carb intakes for millions of years. We've only been dealing with amphetamines and uh, other uh, serotonin uh, uh, modifying agents and such for maybe the last 50 years. My guess is, you know, based on uh, the fact that evolution had a couple million years to figure this out, that we'll do just fine on, on the metabolic effects of a low-carb diet and far better than on what we call xenobiotic compounds, that is, chemicals that the human body has not previously experienced until this generation. Well, thank you for explaining your take on this new Harvard study that's making people rethink a lot about how nutrition goes, and you're suggesting some ways for people to think even further. Absolutely. I'm Shelley Schlender. You've been listening to Steve Finney talking about the new Harvard study that demonstrates that a calorie is not just a calorie. You can find more interviews like this at 
meandmydiabetes.com.